0: All right, this morning on the show, we have Anthony Ian Areno. He is an international speaker, best selling author, sales leader, entrepreneur. He has written three books, including The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, The Lost Art of Closing, and his new book, Eat Their Lunch, just released. um, And he also hosts a popular podcast, In the Arena. So, Anthony, happy Saturday. Good morning. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, thanks for having me back. This is two times with you now.
0: Second time, man. uh, You're only my second recurring guest, so that's an honor. Who was your uh, first recurring guest? Uh, It was Jason Pfeiffer. He uh, is the editor-in-chief over at Entrepreneur Mag. Oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah, so uh, excited to have you on, man. Yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing me on.
1: Thanks for taking a look at the book.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about what, what inspired you to write a third book in three years. I, everything that I've heard from the book writing process is that it's grueling, it's really tough, um, and then you have to promote it. So just a lot of work outside of the business that you own.
1: The uh, writing the book for me is an act of joy. The mm-hmm. editing book is the lowest circle of hell that you could ever find yourself <laughs> in. So that part of it is extremely difficult. Uh, the The first book was really, the only sales guide was really about who do you have to be to be a successful salesperson in B2B complex sale now. So it's what you would call a competency model. The second book was how do you become consultative, truly consultative? And that was The Lost Art of Closing. And then this one is... Um, something I've been doing for a long time. I call it level four value creation. It's in the first chapter of the book. It's about how do you become a strategic advisor and somebody that can really help people change. And the one thing that I've noticed um, is that we've sort of lost our competitive spirit in sales. I think for a whole bunch of reasons, technology and inbound causing people to stop prospecting and a lot of opportunity creation being done by marketing and all these things that sort of make... Uh, it can make it feel like it's out of your hands, that your your future is something that's going to be determined by other factors. So we're we're not as competitive as we were. And I I've been only involved in my life in competitive displacement businesses. So I grew up when selling meant for me to grow, you have to shrink. I have to take a deal from you. I have to take your client from you. So it's probably the thing I know best of all as a salesperson. I I was always in a smaller, under-resourced, no leads, no real advantage, no real competitive differentiation other than what I could create in front of a customer. And and that's what this book really is. It's how do you go out and live in what I call the red ocean where the water's bloody because it's so ferociously competitive. And that's where most of us really operate.
0: Yeah, and it's something that I think there's a lot of different opinions on how to handle the competitive sale. You know, when to bring up the competitor, do you bash them? Do you play nice in the sandbox? Do you avoid bringing them up? Do you avoid going after them because you know your competitor is working so closely with them? And um, it always kind of puts that knot in your stomach when you're talking to a prospect or a client and they bring up that one name or a few names that they say, oh, these guys reach out to me. You know anything about them, or oh, we're already working with these guys, and you're just like, ah, oh, shit. And and it, it, you know, it it takes it. Re- you really have to up your your sales game for a situation like that um, to make sure that you can you know grow the business and grow the partnership. There's a lot.
1: There's a lot being written. I I know Gong.io is writing a lot about when to talk about a competitor, and I thought their their research was interesting. Uh, not because I believe that. AI is good enough to to do what they've done, but because I talked to them and I know that they actually loaded in competitor names to see when they were handled and then how successful the salesperson was. So I think that the thing about big data is uh, it can be confusing for people and it doesn't really tell you the truth. It it gives you some ideas, but it, it doesn't tell you the truth. You have to ask a lot of questions after the fact, but it sort of confirms something that I know. Like The later your competitor pops up, uh, the more difficulty you're going to have winning a deal. So you hope if they come up, they come up early and that you get a chance to do something. You never have to say anything bad about them and it doesn't help you. I mean, to go, those guys suck. They're awful. You should never work with them. It's a terrible strategy. It doesn't work for a whole bunch of reasons. If they're already working with your competitor, then you're like, wow, you must be super dumb to choose those guys. You made a <laughs> horrible decision. Like, Yeah, well, I'm not dumb enough to choose you now that I know that you don't really have any game around this. So the right thing to do in these situations is just to say, uh, listen, Tom, uh, they're a really good company. Uh, They do a lot of really good work. We have friends over there. We have tremendous respect for them. In some areas, what we do is different because we have different beliefs about how you generate those results. And if it's okay with you, since you know them, um, what I'll probably do is just try to differentiate what we see as being very different and some of the approaches that are going to be different and how it helps our clients get better results. Is that okay if I do that? Uh, and I don't need to say anything bad. I'm going to say something nice about them. They're they're good yep. people. They're working really hard. They work for a good company. You know, the, the tough thing is to say, you know, they suck and their business model is terrible and they're not profitable and they're going to go out of business. And you're like, well, they've been in business for 35 years. Like, What what makes you think they're going out of business now? I don't know if their model works or not, but they haven't gone anywhere for a long period of time. And they maybe have been in business longer than you. So I think yeah. all these things that salespeople try, I mean, just accept it. You got a good competitor. They're tough. But in some areas, we're probably better than they are. Can I share that with you? And it does give you a jumping off point for differentiation early in the process, if you can handle that way, and now we're deeply into sales nerd talk. Uh, we're we're getting into <laughs> when do you differentiate, and then very very tactical. But I think it's helpful to people to to think about you know what do you say about a competitor, yeah,
0: and and how about what you say internally through your company, right? And I think that something that gets brought up a lot in say a, a Sales meeting where there's a big rah rah, and there's you know you're teaching maybe the team about competitive displacement, and here's product wise or or service wise why we're better or why where we differentiate. And I think companies have the tendency to say, "Oh, these guys suck." Like here's the five reasons why they they're terrible. We're better, and I think that's kind of a top down approach, and it translates to how the salespeople sell. Is that something that you? talk about with other companies or, or through your own business of, of how you talk about them in your day to day?
1: You know, level one is product differentiation. So level one is the value of the product. And mm. everybody has a good product. I tease people all the time. This is the iPhone 10s max. And it's not the 11s max because they haven't made one. But when they do, I'll go buy it. Mm-hmm. And I will always tell people, you know, raise your hand if you're a Samsung person and then they do. And I tell them, well, I'm allowed to bring my phone on a plane and you're not allowed to. So that means my phone is better than your phone. But the the fact of the matter <laughs> is uh, this has three gigabytes of RAM and the Note 9 has four. Uh, this screen on this iPhone is actually a Samsung screen that they bought from them, you know, because it is the best screen. And so Th- that's where they got their their screens from for this particular phone. Everybody has a good product. Everybody does good work for some group of people. It might not be the same group of people that we do the best work for, but we're all out and we're all capable of creating value. so the the starting point for competitive displacement, in my view is to create more strategic value. So the concept of level four is level one is product, level two is experience. level three, is some sort of tangible business result. But level four is strategic outcomes. And the person who owns that thinking about how do they think about their problem and who captures the mindshare has a distinct advantage. And I think a lot of this is shaped by my view. And so people have other views because there's lots of people that have some version of the truth that works for them. But my view is I've come out of temporary staffing. That's where I spent my life in sales. So I can't go to you and say, the employee I'm going to send you is better than the employee they're going to send you. How? The pay rate's the same. The job set's the same. The skill's the same. You're advertising in the same sources. The market's the same. The number of people available to do this are the same. It's the same for all of you. How do you pick a better one? And then you go into, well, we do this screening process. Yeah, they have a screening process too. Okay, well, we get to know your people. Yeah, they get to know our people too. How do you differentiate if there's no real compelling differentiation, that's going to cause the client to say like, that's way better than what they do. So you had to figure out how do I get more strategic? What do they really want? Is it throughput? Is it, they're trying to retain people. They're working on turnover problems. And so you, the more strategic you get, the greater differentiation. So showing up like a business person, showing up like somebody who can help with those strategic outcomes makes you very different than most everyone else. Because to your point, when I show you their product sucks, and here's the five ways it sucks, uh, and I go in and say their, their product sucks, and they're like, "Well, we've been using it successfully for four years; it works perfectly for us." Okay, now what do you want to talk about? <laughs> okay, you know, so it's a, it's a it's a tough case to make because everybody's product's pretty good. Some are better for some people than others, though, right? And if you get the right. strategy, to figure that out.
0: Yeah, and the four levels of value is really interesting because it's a concept that I've, I don't know if you came up with it or you took it from bits and pieces, but I've never come across it before, but it makes a lot of sense that I think a lot of, even from the first cold email or cold call, a lot of it is here's what our widget does. Here's, you know, uh, here's why it's better than what you might have, or here's how it can help you at, you know, if you're getting really up there, it's, you know we have a customer similar to yours and we've helped them do xyz but you never get to the only person that you know has really uh, i've connected with that has told this type of story is andy raskin who talks about um i forget the the words that he uses but it's essentially starting off your pitch with you know what the general market problem is and talking about that and then, you know the the buyer says oh yeah like i can i can relate to that huge world shift that's happening and then, you know, kind of paint the piece of what the, what the solution is and how it's helpful. And then you tie your, you know, how you can help in. But if you don't get buy-in that there's a big shift in whatever market you're in or whatever problem you have, um, you're selling at too low of a level um, to make the significant impact. And I think that ties well with your level four.
1: I think that that's right, and I, I don't know Andy, but I, I can tell you I didn't invent the four levels of value. I just observed them. So I, I, it's and probably for Andy too, it's the same thing. You make observations and you see why do they lead with product when product doesn't compel anybody to change, you know? And then why do I tell you like I have really big clients and I learned this from them, and you should work with me too because I have big clients well, maybe I'm not big and now you're making me think like I'm not going to be important to you. You know, so people interpret things that we do in whatever way makes sense to them in their world. But when you start saying the world is changing, your world is changing specifically, these are things that are going to have implications on your business if you don't do something. Let me teach you what we see. And in in the second chapter of the book, I talk about mindshare, which is I always use this um concept of the lens that they're looking through their at their world through and i uh, uh, oddly enough a a month ago i spoke to a company that makes lenses and i kept using that metaphor and i'm like this is the weirdest metaphor to use with you because you actually make the lens but so you get this i'm trying to move that lens out of the way and say look at this now now do you see a compelling reason to change now do you see that a better future is available to you now do you see what your choices are and the person who controls that lens controls what the the company and the buyers and the stakeholders do. So if you let them keep the lens that they have, the status quo is pretty comfortable. Do we have problems? Sure. But there are systemic problems in every business and we've learned to work around these or live with them. And so why do I have to change? And then you start saying, wait, but there's greater implications around the corner. Now, now what do you see? And it's like you know what we probably should have been doing something about this sooner. As a as a great example, I fly to JFK quite often, and when I walk out of JFK, I get a Starbucks. Brutal, yeah, I, I get a Starbucks, <laughs> and then I go to the Uber line. And the last time I was there, like the Ubers are flying by. I mean, Uber, 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 one after another. And I walk by the taxis, and there's a a, a note on the window that says, "We have an app." And you're like, you're late. I mean, you could have had an app a (laughs) long time ago, but you didn't think that you needed an app and you didn't understand that somebody was going to organize black cars and give people a much better experience and it's going to give them more control over where they are and having, you know, a much better experience, but they didn't do it. And so the world changed and they didn't change with it. And the same thing with uh, Airbnb. Hilton should have done that. Marriott should have done that. Nobody knows how to organize and manage properties better than they do they're the best but they didn't do it so now you're can you're competing against an Airbnb who's captured people's imagination and given them different experiences so these shifts happen i would i would tell you that my view of a trusted advisor is you have to provide advice that's like, it's only a two part recipe trust and advice and when you don't have the advice you're missing the whole thing but to walk around behind and go to the taxi industry and say Man, that looks like that hurts a lot losing your total market to a big competitor like that. You should have done something sooner. Like where where were you? I mean, you you have to tell people to change before the market hurts them. I mean, that's what your job yeah. is in sales. And it didn't used to be that way. It used to be like we're going to react, you have a problem, we would ask you what's keeping you up at night? What's your pain? Now we have to go to you and say, if you're not awake at night worrying about this, you're making an enormous mistake. So we have to come and get in front of it, and that's really the concept behind level four is how do you get strategic enough to be able to help compel change before change is necessary or before it's too late
0: yeah and the one thing you touched upon was the piece of empathy and putting your and, and really seeing the the different prospects as who they are as a person I think that's something that almost if not every salesperson or entrepreneur might overlook is that I'm not just selling to Anthony the sales director. Uh you know Anthony has a few kids, he has a wife, he lives somewhere, he likes to play golf, uh and he has this whole other life. And on the flip side of that, he also is a certain type of person. He might be very analytical or he might be you know an introvert or he might be really controlling or all these different things that make up who anthony is times the 5 to 10 people that may have an impact or more may have an impact on what you're selling it's so it's a lot more strategic than i think people are making it out to be and and can be a lot more of an art than this there's uh, i guess a scientific aspect but i'm starting to see that it's more of an art form than than a pure science.
1: Well, it, it, it can't be pure science. And, you know, my friend Gerhard, you know, always challenges me is sales an art or a science. So you need to define what science is. So science is a process by where we find the truth that that's what science does. It finds the truth. And so when people mm-hmm. say there's a science to selling, they're wrong because there's not a single source of truth. And, and I would, I would go with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who said that um, as soon as human beings enter anything, it immediately goes nonlinear. And that's why physics is easy and sociology is hard because once Mm. humans get into it, it gets messy and Mm. humans want different things. So if it's science, science means if I do experiment A, I get result B. And then I say, Tom, you, you do experiment A, see what you get. You're like, I get B. And then I give it to somebody else like, you run this experiment. What do you get? Everybody that does this gets B. Okay, fine. So now I have a sales process, so I've made it scientific. So I execute the same sales process you do, and I lose and you win. How's that possible? Because there's enormous human variables. And some people have low blood sugar, and uh, they're just angry. They just woke up angry. Their blood sugar's low. They're dehydrated uh their kid is in an expensive college and they're having trouble making ends meet they really hate their boss they're trying to find a new job i mean so there's just unbelievable amount of variables involved in every one of these scenarios so is it art yeah art art is different art says that i'm going to i'm not going to ignore what i can figure out by looking at what science might even tell us about how people buy and things like that that we can see patterns but I'm also going to look at the individual and try to figure out who is this person? What do they need? How do I help them? Why are they thinking what they're thinking? How is this going to impact them? And the one thing that I'll tell you I notice the most about consensus building now is that when somebody makes a change and there's 14 people in the room and eight of them want to do something, the other six are losing power in some way. They're losing some way to protect their silo. And so they're going to drag their feet. They're going to dig their heels in. And unless you can go and try to make it better for them, a lot of times they'll work really hard to undo whatever it is that you're doing. So in the book, there's a lot of chapters about stakeholders and deciding who has a preference. Why do they have that preference? What do they need? How do you serve them? Because the better you are at that art, which I think is an art. Uh, the better it is. And I know I know, all the science guys are like, yeah, but if we put an fMRI on your head, then we can see that when somebody says this, yeah, but I can't walk around with an fMRI while I'm having a sales call. Like, Could I get each of you to put these electrodes on your head so I can watch what happens? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work yeah. that way. But my my strong belief is that as human beings have evolved over, say, 3 million years, uh, we can already pick up when somebody's lying to us. We We already can pick things up without having to have the fMRI in the first place.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really tough to do and it's you do have a lot of tactical advice on stakeholders in the book, but I think it's also like something that you got to learn by doing because every person's different, every team's different, every there, there's no situation that that happens again and again when you get into a complex sale like that. Um and it's just a lot of a lot of AB testing.
1: I I was in a room where at some point in my life uh you think that people that have titles are the people that you need because they have a title. So they have the formal authority. They have the the structural authority of a hierarchy. They have that. And so you look at them and you think, these are the ones I need. And then at some point, you notice that there's somebody sitting in the room that says nothing while you're talking. They don't say a word. And then somebody looks over at him and says, uh, Tom, what do you think about this? And they're like, I'm not sure yet. And you're just like, oh, no. <laughs> At some point, you realize it doesn't matter who has the formal authority. This person has enough influence that the person of authority just asks their opinion on this, and they're not willing to share it out loud. You now have a problem. And you don't learn that until you learn it. You think, well, the people with the, the power are the ones I need. Mm. You need the people with influence, and influence is invisible. It's like gravity or radiation; it's working on you and around you all the time, but you can't see it. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not the most powerful force on Earth. You know, gravity's rather persistent; it seems to work everywhere on the planet. And influence is the same thing. It works. That person that gets to whisper in the CEO's ear—you don't know who that person is that's sitting in that room, and if you can't elicit it. But you d- you don't learn that until you learn it because you realize that the person that killed your deal had no formal authority, massive influence, and said nothing while you were in the room. I'm not saying that that happened to anybody I know personally, but I did learn it at some point in time. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. I learned it the hard ha- way.
0: Oh, And so that's that's emotional intelligence, I guess, right? It's just understanding human beings better. Like, What are your tips for... That does that just? I guess it comes over time, or the have there been any people or books or anything that have made an impact on your success in that realm? The one of the books that probably had the greatest impact on me in that regard.
1: There's a couple. I mean, emotional intelligence by Daniel Goleman's great. It's worth reading. Uh, it's a little bit too scientific and uh, not as tactical as some something I would have needed at another time. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey just had a metaphor for there's an emotional bank account with each person you know, in your life, and you can't make a withdrawal that exceeds the deposits that you've made in that emotional bank account. And there was something about that metaphor of just thinking about, oh, wait, so I have to load this up before I can make a withdrawal. So before I make an ask, I have to give them enough value that I can cover the ask I'm making for. That was a mindset shift for me. That I immediately started thinking: What does that person need? What? Why are they doing that? What is it that they want? What are they trying to do? What are they afraid of? And if you look at that, then you start to see things that you wouldn't see otherwise, because you're actually looking for those things and you're paying attention. And I, I had this conversation with somebody that I interviewed for my podcast yesterday about empathy, and I, I like empathy; I think it's important. So empathy is walking a mile in someone else's shoes. But I like compassion uh, even more because compassion is recognizing that the shoes are two sizes too small and that I got to get them into a better and a bigger pair of shoes so that they can be happy and comfortable. So what is it? What? Why Why are they struggling? What do they need? And the more that you can just take that view and realize there's a lot of stuff going on that you can't see, if you recognize that you can't see something and you're looking for it, you'll see it. So the awareness comes when you pay attention to who in this room is losing power? Who's losing power when we go this direction and why are they upset? How do we help them and mitigate any damage that we're doing to them to get them to support this? Who's now going to have to change their entire project board because of what we brought in here and who's gonna be unhappy that they don't get what they want and how do we mitigate that? How do we ask people to help understand that so that you can do the very best work that you can do? But if you're aware of that and that these
0: things are going on, you start to see them. And and there's also a piece of you want to try to mitigate that. You want to be able to positively influence every stakeholder. But it's worth noting that there's just times where that, that's just not going to work. There's going to be that person in the room that maybe heard of your product or used it or whatever 12 years ago, and they have such a bad taste and they love your competitor or whatever the situation is. And they're just going to say, no, we're not going to do it. We're just like we're just not going to do it. Um, and whether you know that or not, there's just some s- instances that you can't control. I'm sure, um, uh, hundred percent.
1: Yeah. You 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 get to play. You don't always get to win. I mean, you you always get to play, but you don't always get to win. And one of the things that you, you know, I I think I mentioned in the book that's worth just noting is that uh, consensus doesn't mean a unanimous decision. It means that. Mm-hmm. We all agree that this is necessary, even if it hurts us and even if we really don't want to do it, but it's the right thing to do for the company. So you do sometimes have to say there are going to be people who are opposed to what we're doing here. And we may have to have a conversation about mitigating whatever damage we're going to cause to them and their project board and some of the initiatives that they're working on. And uh, we may need to ask them to stand down and come along with us you know, even though it might be difficult for them to do on the timeline that we're talking about. And that's just being a trusted advisor and having grown up conversations. But you can't expect to get 100%. In fact, you know what, if you get 100%, then I'm really worried. Like, if you get 100%, everybody says, yes, we want to do this. That sounds too easy. And whenever anything's too easy, then I'm worried like, all right, they're probably not going to execute then. They're they're thinking we're going to do way more of the heavy lifting here and that they don't have to do any. And then I start to worry the other direction. You know, you, you need people who are going to push the, uh, how is this going to work? You know, how are we supposed to do this? You need to find that stuff out as early in the process as you can. We're getting and, super tactical here. So, yeah. <laughs> this is super sales nerd talk today.
0: Yeah, let's get, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Hey, we're, we're just nerds nerding out. Um, there's a lot of salespeople that, that tune in and I think they'll appreciate this because, you know, a lot of. I, honestly, I think a lot of the content that goes out around sales is kind of fluffy. It's hey, add value. It's, um, you know, like be the trusted advisor or whatever, but it's not the tactical. How do you actually do that? Or, um, you know, all of these, there's a lot of buzzwords out there. So I think um, at least for me, it's, it's helpful to get into it a little bit um, and hear your perspective. Now. Here's something that I want to bring up on this topic too. We're, we're talking about things in sales that these deals are, are complex. And all this emotional intelligence, this takes time. And it's kind of like a chess match that you're trying to influence the pieces. You probably have to do some internal influencing that we won't even get into, but it's that's a whole nother piece. The point is that it takes a lot of time. And in a sales culture where You might have a monthly or quarterly target that you might be behind on and everyone goes through those ups and downs. Do you have advice for people that, you know, how they can really focus on the long term vision and not sacrifice what could be really fruitful six months from now because they have a target two weeks from now?
1: The best advice I think I can give on that was The Lost Art of Closing. And the reason I put that book before this one is because the process takes as long as it takes, but your bad behavior as a salesperson can make it take a lot longer than it needs to. And the customer's bad behavior as somebody who needs a better result can also make it take way longer than it needs to. So what what I wrote is um, my best version of how do you have all the conversations that you need to have to compress the sales cycle, not just for you and your quarterly number, which is important, and you have to do that too, but also for them to say, if this is the right thing for them to do, uh, better results now are better than better results six months from now. And if if there's an ROI, and let's say it's a million dollars over six months, a million dollars coming back into their business now is better than a million dollars coming back into their business a year from now. And so we, we have to start looking at this and say, What are the conversations we need to have? And in that book, I wrote down 10 commitments. I need you to give me your time. I need you to explore change. If it makes sense to change, then I need you to commit to giving me the time and the resources and the money to do it. I need you to collaborate with me and design a solution. I need you to get the right people into the room so we can get consensus on this thing for sure. I need you to invest, review, let me resolve the concerns, and then I can ask you. And the more you recognize that they have to go through these processes and it's a nonlinear framework. So it doesn't always go in. mean sometimes, you know, this because you sell. So it can be discovery, 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 presentation. Wait a second. More discovery. You know, it, it doesn't always work in a linear fashion. No. Uh, somebody just came into the process. Now they want to start over because you didn't do discovery with them. And you're like, OK. All right, so that's you. You have to ask who else cares about this enough to be here and who do we need to bring onto this team? If you want to compress the cycle, you have to control the process, which means you need to explain, if you sell the process to the, the prospects that you're working with, very, very smooth from one commitment to the next, not that you're not going to have to go back and forth through some stages, but you'll compress the cycle because you've shared with them, these are the things that we need to do and this is how we think it works. Now I can serve them and I can get them to do the things that they need to do. It's when they start skipping or we start skipping. And so they're like, listen, Tom, uh, you're great. Love you. Love everything you said. Send me a proposal. And you're like, wow, that's great. They want to see a proposal. Yeah, but do you have consensus? Did they collaborate? Is the solution already 100% right? Needs no changes. Have you resolved any concerns they have about execution? Can they sign that and just buy? Maybe the answer is Yes. But maybe the answer is no. And and they look mm-hmm. at it and like, oh, it's pretty close. You know, I wish it was a little bit different because we could probably do something with it, but it's not right yet. And anybody listening to this, if you're in sales and you've handed over your proposal and you're still waiting for somebody that said they were going to meet with their team and get back to you two weeks ago, and you've been waiting for like three and a half <laughs> years, now you know why that happened. This is because they looked at it and were like, nope, this is wrong. We can't do it right now. And it got moved aside. But that's us. That's us. We're responsible for controlling the process. And I know uh, I know, everybody's talking about, oh, the buyer has all the power and you should just try to serve them. No, you shouldn't. If you're trying to serve people, you go and talk to them about what they really need to do, not what they want to do. They want to skip all of these steps and just get the result that they want. But skipping it means they don't. So if you want to be a trusted advisor, you go in and you say, uh, Tommy, that is one ugly baby. I mean, that's the ugliest. In fact, I could put a ribbon or a bow on that baby's head and then we're both looking at an ugly baby with a ribbon or a bow on its head. I mean, it's <laughs> ugly. you know, you, somebody has to be the truth teller and say, look, this isn't going to work. I can give you a proposal right now, but we're leaving out all these people who are going to care about this and who we need to help us do this thing. My best advice is why don't we bring them in? And I know that there's going to have some issues, but let's deal with them now. So later on we can execute. Somebody has to be the one that does that. Whose job is it is the question the buyer doesn't know. They don't have a process. And I would tell you, there's not a buyer map. There's buyer maps. Each one has their own view of something that they want. So when you think that, when you look at a buyer's journey, oh, the buyer's in this stage of the journey. No, some buyers are in that stage of the journey. Some of them are not on the journey at all yet. Some of them don't want to go on that journey. Okay, so now what does that mean for us? So you got to start managing that process.
0: Yeah, and it's just yeah. I mean, that's an interesting piece to think about too. And I mean, if you're sending an RFP or you're sending a proposal and you send it via email and you don't have a meeting on the calendar, you don't have a call scheduled, you you should probably go focus somewhere else because you probably lost you probably lost that deal. Um, I want to take a little shift from. I know we've been super tactical. We've gotten the weeds, put on our our glasses, and nerded out, but. I think a lot of, you know, part of sales is those tactics, but I think an even more important part is uh, you, you call them intangibles, the mindset, the attitude, all the different pieces. I think that is, especially for people that are just starting sales, maybe they just graduated college and are getting into it. You're not going to have all of the, the hard skills solved out, but some of the intangibles that you can work on, I think are really important. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit, some of the ones that you think are most prevalent.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, a whole bunch of them. And I, I think that's exactly right. And people always wonder, why are they so successful? They have a an inferior product, they have an inferior company, and they're killing it. How is that? How's that even happen? Well, they have all the intangibles. They tend to have uh, the ability to have what you call empathy or emotional intelligence. Uh, we changed that to caring in my first book, The Only Sales Guide, because the editor that looked at it's like, this is way too complicated. You got empathy, you got emotional intelligence, you got caring. Can't we bundle them all together? And uh, because you only get 60,000 words in a book, he's like, you don't have this many words. You have to get rid of some words, so we need to compress it. But those things matter a great deal. Are you other oriented? Are you working in service of other people? Do you have the uh, empathy, to understand, and the emotional intelligence to be able to work with a group of people. Yes. So that that's an intangible that will over-index. Do you have a sense of humor? Can you bring levity to a situation? Are you the kind of people that people want to be around? All right. So uh, intangible. And some people have more of it than others. It's not distributed equally. But if you want to be easier to get along with, uh, sleep seven hours at night instead of six. And uh, drink a lot of water so you're not dehydrated because most of us walk around dehydrated and get a better attitude. And uh, attitude's another thing; it's a total variable from one person to the next. And some people are pessimistic and cynical. Right now, your listeners, half of them think Trump is a great president, and the other half hate him. You know, and 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 the, that they're split evenly that way. But they're all, many of them, are on Facebook right now arguing about it. And they're pessimistic, cynical, and concerned about things over which they have no control. And the most successful people are like, I'm going to be successful. I don't really care who the president is. It doesn't matter to me because I'm 100%. so empowered. I'm going to go do whatever I want to do to generate the results I want for my life. And that president doesn't have any influence or impact on me. Uh, and spending hours and hours writing long screeds on uh, Facebook does not help you produce a better result for anyone. And if you're listening to this, if you're within the sound of our voices, you're not changing a single mind. So move on with your life. But attitude is an intangible. The ability to be a peer, the ability to sit across from someone and believe that you belong in that room is an intangible. And so Mm. if you're a young person and you are a young person, which uh, I'm not accusing you of not being very smart, but I'll just say you will be less dumb over time. If you're a young person, (laughs) you you get (laughs) only only slightly less dumb though. You will still be very, very dumb, but slightly less dumb over time. That's your goal is to say, okay, I'm still dumb about almost everything, but a few things I now know something about. But, but what you'll find out is that you don't have to know everything. You have to be a good student. So, to be slightly less dumb and value creating for other people, you can go and sit down across from a, a, a client who's two times your age and say, tell me, help me understand your business and help me understand what strategic value creation from somebody in my role would be for you and let them educate you and say, you know what? These mm-hmm. are the things that we're most focused on. This is really what we need from a partner. I'm going to make you a promise. If you have that conversation, w- the fact that you ask that question you've already increased the preference in the eye of the customer. Like, wait, this person's trying to figure out how to serve me better. I like that. How can I not like that? I like that this person's trying to find a way to create greater value for me. Everyone likes that. Everyone wants a partner and people will teach you. If you ask your clients to teach you how to serve them, they're gonna be happy to share with you how they view their business and how they view yours. The intangibles matter, I think, most of all. And I had a mindset shift myself. The first book I wrote, um, I wrote that sales is success is mindset plus skill set plus toolkits. Mm-hmm. And then somebody on Twitter said, I disagree with you. And I'm the kind of person who likes to be slightly less dumb. And so I always read yep. things like that. And he said, It's not. It's skill set plus toolkit multiplied by mindset. And as Ooh. soon as I, uh, right. Yeah. You had the same reaction I had. I just did the same thing. I said, Oh, that's good. That's really good. Mm-hmm. It's right, too. It's correct. So, I immediately sent my designer the deck that we use with the mindset, skill set, and toolkit framework on it. And I had him tell that story with a visual now that we use in every presentation where we show that. And then we rearrange it to explain that the mindset's the multiplier, it's not additive. It oh, yeah. multiplies whatever your results are, they're going to be multiplied by that mindset. So the last three chapters of Ether Lunch is, is specifically about being consultative, being a trusted advisor, being a peer. What are the intangibles that get you there? Because it's the intangibles that they're deciding on. And I know people don't want to believe that. They want to believe I can automate success. I can build a funnel that runs by itself and all these kinds of concepts. The fact of the matter is in B2B sales, where we're one to one or one to 14, whatever the case may be they're they're judging you by the intangibles. What's the experience of working with Tom? What does that feel like to me? Do I like this? Do I trust this? Does it seem like the right thing to do? And as much as we wish that the process would do it for us, they're still dealing with an individual that is the representation, you know, of of what
0: that experience is going to be like. And and here's the thing too. That's not just sales success. That's everything is what you say skill set plus tool set uh, times mindset. I mean, that is anything I can think of that I have been successful at or failed at can go to directly to that, um, directly to that uh, logic and that um, math equation. I guess I would call it. And it's interesting because this week I, I is a great example. I uh, got into a little bit of a slump with some of the sales, and a few things had not really gone my way, and I was getting a little bit down Monday through Wednesday. It just felt Groggy and tired and moody, and Wednesday night I'm just like I'm a, have had enough of this shit. So you know Thursday morning I wake up, I write like two or three sentences down when I first wake up. Something just I'm only going to let positive thoughts in. I'm only going to speak positively. I'm going to be the most energetic person anywhere I go. And I got up, went on a little run, you know, went to the office and felt amazing. Both I had more energy. Uh, things started to go better and the conversations I was having. And I just felt good. And yeah, I've been doing that the last, you know, it's only been three days, but it's such an important thing that the mindset can change everything that happens in your life and it, it grows over time. So if you you do that every single day and you know, 1% better, it, it really multiplies over a long period of time.
1: It's uh, it's very interesting because you you get to decide what your beliefs are, but mostly you're just infected with other people's beliefs. So that's what happens to most of us. We get infected with uh, like, oh, the Trump president, he's going to destroy the world. And, you know, all, all these things that people say, our competitor's price is lower than ours. There's no way to beat them. Well, how do we have all this business? I mean, we must beat them sometimes, right? How do you have this absolute belief that you have that you can't win? But if it's your absolute belief, it's your absolute belief. But that's not my absolute belief. And so at some point this last week, you decided like my mindset's in my control. And, uh, I did a negativity fast. I'm writing a book about how to do the negativity fast where I decided I don't take anything negative in because it would be like, you know, eating poison. So why would I eat poison? It's poison that you're taking in when you're on Facebook and you're taking in all the political stuff and all the global stuff and all the griping and complaining of the rest of the world. You're just drinking straight poison all the time. So why would you drink that when there's there's uh, my buddy Jeb Blunt's content where there's Les Brown, where there's Anthony Robbins, where there's Stephen Covey, where there's Brian Tracy. I mean, why yeah. wouldn't you take in things that are positive and empowering and that are going to help you generate the results you want in your life? And I did it um, for 30 days and then 60 okay. days and then 90 days. And I stayed on it. And I basically, I'm immune to whatever happens around me. I don't, I don't, my i'm a bleeding heart libertarian so my candidate smoked pot and thought that aleppo was the guy who invented pinocchio you know and so there there was there's no chance so i i don't have a, a dog in that fight so i i appreciate people have their opinions about it but if it makes you so negative and so cynical and if it makes you so upset uh Th- what what you just described is get up in the morning and write down on a piece of paper, who do I want to be today? And are you a force for good? Are you a force for light? Are you here to make a difference for other people? If that's what you are, you can't let any of this stuff have any impact on you. And if you go for a run, it's impossible to be depressed and run at the same time. You can't <laughs> do it. It's impossible to do because you're breathing. And to yeah. be depressed, you have to change your physical state to the depressed state of shoulders down, head down, eyes down, talking to yourself about my life sucks. This is terrible. I lost that deal. Shouldn't have lost. It wasn't my fault. Stupid manager wouldn't let me discount. You can, you can talk yourself into that state, but when you're running, there's no way you can have that state. Cause you're like, I just have to try to keep breathing. I just have to get to that stop sign so I can turn around. Your mind's thinking about all kinds of other things, but your physiology changes. And then the mind follows that. So, uh, sleep, hydration, really good for your attitude. But I, I would tell you, you're 100% right. Uh, negativity is the only cancer that spreads by contact. And so, yeah. why come in contact with it if you don't have to? And I'm not saying like bad stuff isn't going on. Since the world started spinning 4.8 billion years ago, bad stuff has been going on. Okay. Right. So, that, that it, and it will continue to go on. But a lot of good stuff goes on here too. I don't know how many babies were going to be born today. I mean, thousands and thousands of people have a baby today. It's a beautiful thing. People are getting married. They're getting promotions. They're falling in love. I mean, uh, there's nothing but good things around you. You just have to open your eyes and look at it. And uh, I love your story. So every every, uh, Wednesday from now on, every day could be your Wednesday. You can get up and and say, I'm going into this day with the same mindset I had on Wednesday because it's a, a lot better, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's incredible. I pride myself on being someone that is usually on the up and up, and keep my mindset well. And I I found myself in that slump. I think everyone has those days or weeks, and it's trying to limit that. But you you consume all of the content from those people, like that you had mentioned, and they all have their different spin on it. But everyone's saying also kind of some of the same things. They they've been tried and true methods to feeling better. It's go on that run it's get 7 8 hours of sleep it's drink water it's read something positive it's you know go do something for someone else that they're not expecting um it's you know put a smile on your face laugh it you know all these different things that th- there's a lot of them but they're really simple to do and they're all in your control and you can almost flip a switch and you start to do those things and you think about the positive things you're like oh actually you know, things are going pretty well here and I like my coworkers and you know this deal just closed and um I think that girl's checking me out or whatever it is and like your world just starts to look a little bit better when you focus on the positives.
1: That's what I mean the world's going to be whatever you look for. I mean that that that's for all of us true and we we do know what to do. We've known for a long time. Pick up Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way. I mean the the Stoics unbelievable. You, know, you just you you decide what something means, and you know it's a, it's a morbid way to say it. I said it on the newsletter last week. You know, you're under 8 billion people have lived on this planet and died, so we're almost certain that that's what's going to happen to you at some point in time. Now, almost certain. I know a lot of people are trying to figure out the technology to keep us alive forever, but if that's true, then you have today. I mean, you have right now. So you get to decide what you do in the dash between your birth date and the day that you leave Earth decide what you're going to be and what you're going to do because nothing else really matters if the if the end is already known I mean all you have to decide is w- what you want to do between those two times and I think why not be a force for light and a force for good and make a difference and uh, i I wrote this in the the newsletter you know the pyramids in Egypt the pharaohs buried themselves with everything that they wanted in the afterlife so there's lots of gold and all kinds of you know, artifacts and jewels and all this other stuff. It's still here. The pharaohs are gone, <laughs> but it's still here. So that can't be going with you uh, when you leave. It's not leaving with you. So where do you put your focus?
0: Yeah, and it's it's such an important thing. I'm glad we're talking about it. I, I want to ask a little bit about the negativity fest because I am very intrigued by that. Um, what What exactly did you block out? And how did you how did you do it?
1: So I did I did this when social media was still in its infancy. So it was easier for me than it is for people now. Uh, okay. I turned off AM radio completely, and I yeah. turned off uh, so NPR, all all of the the uh, anything that was political or global events driven. I turned that off. I turned off the television completely. So I watched no news. Okay. I read no newspapers. I read no magazines. Uh, I I tuned out any human being that was negative in my life. I avoided Uh, for 30 days. I started to avoid. I'm not I'm going to avoid this person. I have any conversation because they're so negative. And instead, what I decided to do, this was the the imagery that I used for myself. I imagined that my mindset was like a glass and that the mo- the water had gotten really muddy over time cuz i was in law school it was super political i'm a libertarian so everybody hates me i hate everybody we <laughs> you know there's people who are big government people and people who are small government people and there's all this and it, it was a political time and so i got caught up in reading and global affairs which i read i was a political science major then law school and then At some point, I recognized, gosh, I'm really, I mean, I really am negative. I feel angry. I feel upset by all this stuff all the time. And fortunately, I had a great mentor one time who said, none of this has anything to do with you. Your job is just outrun the bastards and have the life you want to have. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, say that again? I mean, what he said, just outrun the bastards. I mean, whatever you have to do, pay your taxes, do whatever you have to do, just have the life for you and your family that you want. That's all you can do. And it stuck with me. So instead of that, I decided to get that muddy water out of the glass. I could try to pour it out, or I could try to blast it out with a fire hose. So I went with the blast out with a fire hose. So I I bought Stephen Covey's Seven Habits on audio. I bought a number of Anthony Robbins programs on audio because he has a a very empowered mindset. I bought uh, Les Brown. Who, I mean, when Les Brown laughs, if you don't find joy in his laugh, then you have no soul. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is infectious for sure. And I just started finding as much positive stuff, Zig Ziglar's uh, Born to Win and See You at the Top. I bought those audio programs and I decided for 30 days, all I'm going to do is try to flush all this out with just positivity, positivity, empowerment, one thing after the next. At the end of 30 days, I felt better. But I also liked it so much, how much better I felt, that I'm like, I'm going to do it another 30 days. So I thought, okay, yeah. so I had to get some more content because if I'm in the car, if I'm running, if I'm in the shower, I'm only listening to the most positive things I can find. So then I started listening again. And then at the end of that 30 days, I'm like, there's no reason to turn any of this back on now. There, there's, there's no longer a reason right. to turn on the radio or to watch the news and to be upset by any of these things. So I'm aware of everything that's going on. I know that somebody who's a kook sent bombs. I'm aware of that. I know there's an election coming up. I'm aware, but I'm not attached to the outcomes of those. I'm not upset by what happens. Um, And I'm now a a person who's positive instead of negative because the world will continue to infect you with beliefs. And I would tell you there's an industry here in the United States that thrives on separating people from each other into little tribes to argue with each other for attention and, and advertising dollars and money and to, uh, to decide where power flows in this country. And so I, I am not part of that anymore. I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm seeing it, but it, it isn't going to impact what I'm here to do. Cause I, I have a dash too. I have a beginning and an right. end. I hope, you know, and, and if I was going to be bit by a vampire, I would have wanted it to be when I was closer to your age than my age. It would have been better at that time. But I don't think that there's going to be this immortality that happens very quickly. So what do you do with your time? If you're going to be a force for good and make a difference in people's lives, get rid of the negativity because that will help you go and help other people get rid of their negativity when they see that you're a positive force and that this stuff isn't causing you to say, I can't have the life I want or I can't be what I'm supposed to be or make the difference I want to make the difference of because you can. You can. It's a decision, and and that's the thing about mindset. It's a decision. You decide, and you decided on Wednesday. That was a decision that you made. You said, "I'm going to change yeah. this right now," and you changed it, and it worked.
0: Yeah, it's and that's part of the reason why, you know, I'm we're talking today, and I'm doing this show, and I'm doing the blog, is that I see so much negativity out there, and you know, probably since. For a very long time, there's been negative media in newspapers and radio and uh, carrier pigeon back in the day or whatever. But you know, it's it, it's the impact that you can have on your life and others' lives if you're positive and you stay positive and you focus on the right things. And not only are you learning from positivity and it, it puts you in a better mood, but you're actually probably learning quite a bit uh, of actual useful things for your life from the people that you mentioned, um, because I'm a subscriber to all or almost all of those people um, and have learned a a tremendous amount and plan to learn a lot more so I can get a little bit less dumb uh, as I get older. (laughs) Yeah. Good, good strategy. Slightly less dumb from day to day. Yeah. Well, I think this is in, you know, this is kind of how last interview went too. we got, you know, first half is kind of book. Second half was uh, more mindset and intangibles. And I think this has something for everyone. Um, but you know, on the, on this note, any last words that you have for the millennials out there listening to this, whether it's sales related or mindset related? Um, and then also where can we find all of the, you know, tremendous content that you put out the blog the podcast, social media, and obviously the book.
1: I I forgot the name of your podcast until you just said it. I mean, I know it. I knew it. I knew it before, but it it didn't dawn on me that that's uh, while we've been talking. So I do. You offered me a chance to say something to millennials. So uh, I will say something to millennials. Uh, You're way underestimated. You're way, way underestimated. And uh, the more people I meet who are between, let's say, 22 and 26, Uh, the more confident confident I am that you're going to do great. You're going to do tremendous. So for all of the people who are negative and they're like the millennials, you know, and and I get it. Everybody got a trophy and all that stuff. Uh, Okay, fine. Everybody's catching on. Everybody's doing well. There's a whole bunch of people who are hustlers as millennials. They're not all what people think they are. If you're listening to this, I know you're probably the kind of person that's trying to improve themselves, that's trying to generate good results. Your consciousness happens to be higher than most of the generations before you. You do care about social issues and it does help make the world a better place that you actually care about things that you should care about that are big picture things. So uh, I forgot that I was doing that. So I'm glad now I get to say this because uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm impressed with you and I think you're going to do amazing things and whatever you hear about millennials, this and millennials, that, Uh, don't worry about it. Every generation looks like an absolute mess to the generation that came before them yeah. and minded to the group before us. They're like, what is wrong with these Gen Xers? My goodness. They're so me oriented and all this other stuff. And we're all fine. And if you you look at the baby boomers, you have to remember the, they came up during Vietnam. They were out, you know, protesting in the street and growing their hair. They look like a bunch of hippies you know, that, yeah. that's Bill and Hillary Clinton. You know, they're now they, they their whole life was fight the man. They are the man. And eventually yeah. that's going to happen to you. Eventually, you're going to be the ones making decisions and it's all going to be
0: great. I appreciate that. I appreciate the positivity out there. That's what we need. That's what we need. Um, and that's true. I mean, it's true. There's for every stereotype, there are people that fit the mold and people that don't. And you know, I like to choose to surround myself and highlight some of the people that um you know are breaking that mold and, and doing great things. So I appreciate the kind words. Well, yeah, but it, it's all true. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, and um, then real quick before we, how about a little uh, a self promotion of the book and social and where all where else we can find you.
1: Thesalesblog.com. That's my primary um home base for everything that I do. So you can find me there. It's also anarino.com, my last name. Uh the book is on Amazon. It's uh Ether Lunch. The the younger you are and the more new you are to sales, I would say start with the first one, the only sales guide. Pick this one up after you get through that one because it's gonna help you. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Just don't pitch me straight out like give me a, a couple conversations see the new thing on LinkedIn is how fast can you pitch I think and uh, <laughs> youtube.com forward slash Yanano and uh, I'll connect with you anyway and thanks so much for for having me on
0: yeah thanks Anthony I appreciate it um, everyone check out the content uh, check out all three books he puts out a lot of uh, content also on Twitter, Instagram, um, the sales blog. Newsletter. So the, there's content flowing from this man constantly.
1: Pretty true. <laughs>